The reason I am sharing this message with you is because God has really worked in my heart and has shown me some things about who he is and what that means in relation to others that I'm just so excited. It's like the Lord, by his grace, through his spirit, took another layer of scales off my eyes so that I could better see who God is and better see how to love others, how to think of them as God thinks of them, how to see people as God sees them. So I'm excited. The Lord has done a work in my heart, and this is how I have understood that. Last week, we looked at God as a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. We looked at the message of the whole Bible as a covenant and how that covenantal understanding is key because God relates to us through his covenant. Now I want to ask a slightly different question. What kind of God would relate by covenant? Think about this. Here is the main point of this message. Only persons can have covenantal relationships with one another. And God is a covenant person. This is about the covenant personhood of God. So let's dive into this. The covenant personhood of God. The scripture rarely, if ever, uses the word person to describe God. So why would I begin this message with the idea that God is a person? And the reason is because our language, in our language, the word person applies to beings who speak, act intentionally, and are a whole, complete, living being. There's really no other word in English that describes or communicates the idea of what it means to be a person than the word person. Because in our language, the word applies to beings who act, have a mind, emotion, and will, that it's important that we understand how this concept relates to God. Well, the Bible may not use the word person to refer to God as such, it does repeatedly emphasize all that the English word means by person. Here are some examples. Persons are referred to with personal pronouns. He or she, not it. We see right from the beginning, God, he created. Genesis 1.5 God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So as soon as you're reading about this creator God, you're struck with this is a person. He called it night. He, not it, God is a person. Persons are alive, not dead. God is the living God. This is stressed in scripture. Throughout we see the scripture says he is a living God. He is an active God. He's a sovereign God. He speaks. Deuteronomy 5.26 Who has heard the voice of the living God? Our God is not a dead God. He's a living God. He speaks to us. He walks with us. He talks with us. 
He is a covenant person. Not person as in a man, but as having the qualities of personhood. He's the source of these. He speaks the voice of the living God. In Joshua 3, 9, So Joshua heard the children of Israel, Come, hear, and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you. When you hear His words, you see the One who has given us His words. You don't see Him with your eyes, but you hear Him. And in hearing, you can see what is being communicated, even though with your eyes you may not see. He is powerful. First uh, Samuel seven twenty six. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So as David runs out and he hears Goliath speaking these blasphemies, he says, "Who are you to defy the armies of the God who's alive, the living God, not the God of stone or wood or the figment of someone's imagination?" The distinctive characteristic of the God of the Bible is that He is the absolute sovereign living God. He is described as a person because He is a person, not a force. He's a person, not a stone. He's a person, not a concept. He's a person, that is, He's alive, not dead. He is real, not fake. He is the living God. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. 2 Kings 19.16 These words, the living God, are used over and over when the enemies of God would be blaspheming and speaking against the God of the Bible. And those who have faith would stand up and say, Our God is a living God! Our God is a sovereign God! He is the Lord! And He is actively involved in our lives because he is actively involved as a God. He is a person in the sense that he is alive. He is responsive. He has consciousness. He has intelligence. <laughs> There's so many false ideas about God as if God is just some kind of a, a fairy tale or a force. Or you have this idea of Christian atheism that people have a, a notion and the ethics of Christianity, but they deny the God of Christianity. They have something about Jesus, but they divorce him from his father. They live as if there is no God, but they still retain Christian in name only. And so there's so much theological confusion about what it means to know God. Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So, so many times throughout the Bible, Scripture is used to declare that God is the living God. In, in the English language, this is what we use to describe someone who has personhood. They're alive, they speak, they act, they make decisions, they can take counsel, they make distinctions, they create, they are complete whole, they have a standard, self-consciousness, they purpose within. This is, this is what God does. Sometimes we don't think of, I don't know, sometimes we just think of God as just kind of an impersonal force. I'm really trying to drive home that God is not an impersonal force. He's not just a God in the distance. He's not just over in the corner forgetting things. 
or an uninvolved parent or an absentee parent or an, or an uninvolved father, like an earthly father, but he is, he is a living being. He stands alone as the living God in contrast to all non-living gods and impersonal forces. I remember when I was five years old, sitting with my parents, watching one of the most popular movies of all times. It was the first one of its kind, a true groundbreaker. And it taught me that in times of great evil, the answer was to use the force. Use the force, Luke. Remember Luke Skywalker going after the Death Star and he switches off his equipment and he relies on the force to do battle against the evil of his in the movie. And so it's very instructive here that the force is what made the difference. And for men to have power to do what they believe is right, they would use the force. It was not by the grace of God, but by means of an impersonal force that Luke Skywalker blew up, destroyed the Death Star, and Darth Vader is blown away into outer space, setting the stage conveniently for the next sequel. My point is that all the world sees God not as the personal living God, but as an impersonal force. John Frame, in his book, The Doctrine of God, states, we learn something very important about the biblical worldview. In scripture, the personal is greater than the impersonal. The impersonal things and forces in this world are created and directed by a personal God. According to naturalistic thought, all persons in the world are the product of impersonal forces, and they can best be understood by reducing them to impersonal bits of matter and energy, or by them or by them aspects of an impersonal force or oneness or chaotic chance. So from a naturalistic worldview, the impersonal creates the personal. And so the most fundamental issue of the reality is the impersonal. And so the impersonal, when that is the God of the system, the impersonal sets the stage and the context and the expectation to understanding reality in terms of the impersonal rather than the personal. And if things are really about the impersonal, then heaven is impersonal and everything is impersonal. In this view, persons are reduced to the impersonal. The Bible calls this sin. Sin is the outworking of objectifying people and ultimately of God, reducing God to a dumb idol and people objectifying them and making them something other than they are in the nature of their reality. Objectifying others takes many forms. Objectification is the act of treating a person or sometimes an animal as a thing or an object. It's part of dehumanization, the acts of disavowing the humanity of others. We like to use the word, that's inhumane. Many things are called inhumane today. What the world calls inhumane, the Bible calls sin. 
It is the act of relating to another in a way that is inconsistent with who they are as people. This is always the result of not relating to God for who He is and rejecting the covenant person of God. When we act or relate to people in a way that is not consistent with who they are, we disrespect them as image bearers of God. One example of this is sexual objectification. Sexual objectification is the act of treating a person solely as an object of sexual desire. And so someone is, but the, but the core of that is when someone exists to meet my needs. It's selfishness. And if the world is just an impersonal force and what's really behind everything is an impersonal force, then what's wrong with me not seeing how I should love others, but seeing them simply as existing to meet my needs and objectifying them with the reality that I create in my own heart and my own lust to use people for my pleasure. That's what happens when you reject the reality and the notion of the living God, of the God who is the personal God, who is holiness and who is righteous and love and, and everything good flows from His throne. When we reject the reality of a personal God of the Bible that He created, that He is God, He is in control, then we in pride set ourselves up to be in that place to rule the universe and have everything revolve around ourselves. This is a great evil and a horrible sin. Objectification, more broadly, treats a person as a commodity or an object without regard to their personality or their dignity. Again, the Bible calls this sin. Personal dignity and worth comes from God. If you think about the commandments of God, which the wicked hate, they go against this. To objectify parents means that you don't have to listen to your parents. That's nothing. To objectify someone who is getting you, who's annoying you, you can objectify them and call them a name. Call them something that they don't, uh, that you don't like. To Objectify others sexually breaks the seventh commandment. How about the eighth commandment? Uh, to steal from someone. Well, if I don't know the person, what harm is it? Well, it hurts that person. You've stolen from a person. But before you can uh, steal from them, you objectify them, say, oh, it doesn't matter, and you just steal from them. That breaks the eighth commandment. So stealing, or when you think about the person that you're stealing as a person and you value their dignity and their worth, you're not going to steal from them. When you see them as image bearers of God, you wouldn't steal for them. But if life is just guided by an impersonal force, random chance, there's no God ruling, personal God ruling over creation, <clears throat> then who's to say you can do what you want? But in the biblical view, the impersonal reduces to the personal. And that's the opposite. It's the opposite. In the biblical view, the impersonal forces that we see in creation they reduce or they come from the personal God. Because the first and primary cause of the cosmos is not impersonal, but personal. It's not physical, it's spiritual. 
in the beginning, God. Therefore, <clears throat> therefore, matter, energy, motion, time, and space are all under the rule of a personal, covenant-keeping God. And He is the one who clearly directs them, not an impersonal force. All the wonderful things that we find in personality, intelligence, compassion, creativity, love, and justice are not impersonal data doomed to be snuffed out in a cosmic calamity. Rather, they are aspects or expressions of what is most permanent and most personal, and that is God Himself. Scripture says, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things consist. So the personal God who made all things, made these things for Himself, the matter, the energy, the space, all these things that people look at in a naturalistic or in a God-hating worldview and say, these things are the ultimate. The, the impersonal forces that we see around us, the matter is what matters. A naturalistic worldview, but the biblical worldview reveals the truth. That by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Hebrews 11.3 the things which are seen are made from the invisible. The invisible God who exists has created the sovereign Lord of all creation. He is the source of all these things that we see. God is the personal one sustaining all the forces of nature. This makes the living God and his person the source of all that is. Everything then has existence and meaning only in relation to him. For he made for all things were made from Him and for Him, and before everything, He exists. Because God, the God of the Bible, is an actual person, He gives meaning to all things that are living. This, is, this has always been the foundation for knowing God. Think about Paul in Acts 17, when he went to the Areopagus, and he went to the men of Athens and said, Men of Athens! I perceive, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So here we go. They're, they're worshiping the gods of gold and stone and material things. And maybe they said, well, maybe we forgot a God. So here's one to the unknown God. Now look where Paul states. He says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him. First word that he uses to describe God. God is a him. Him I proclaim to you. He, I know him. He's a personal God. Him. Don't let that slip your mind there in Acts 17.23. Him, the personal God, I proclaim to you. God the Creator God who made the world and everything in it, the covenant ruling person, since He is Lord of heaven and earth. 
He's the covenant ruling person, the personal God, the creator God. He does not dwell in temples made without hands, nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He has made from one blood every nation to dwell on the face of all the earth. He has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling, so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of our own prophets have said, for we are his offspring. So here Paul argues that, look at you, your people. You have personality. You have personhood. Do you think you came from a God without personality or personhood? Do you think you came from a God who is of lesser intelligence than you? For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Verse 29, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is impersonal, or, as Paul said, is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. We ought not think that the divine nature is less than us, is less than people. The divine nature is not less than us. We are his offspring, your poets have said. The divine nature is not impersonal. The God is, um, of the, the divine nature is not impersonal. The, the divine nature is not material. The divine nature is something other completely other than this. We are the closest thing on earth to the divine nature as image bearers of God. So Paul is saying, you don't even know the God. You don't even know the person of God. He, I will declare to you, He is the creator. He is the sovereign ruler. He is not an impersonal force. He is not a material being. He is not simply a, a, a figment that you can create in your own mind. God is not a figment of your imagination. God is not something that you just think of. God is not something that an atheist can say, well, I don't believe in that God. God is not something the agnostic can have a decision on. God is. God exists. God is real. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, there's your first clue. Where do people come from? We're made in the image of likeness of God. Therefore, we ought not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly, therefore, these times of ignorance God overlooked. So God is merciful. He is patient. He allows the atheists and the, the Christian agnostics and all those who don't understand the reality of God, and he's patient. But his patience has a purpose. God overlooked these, this ignorance, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, to turn from this wrong idea of God, to turn from seeing God as an idol, an impersonal force, to seeing God as something that simply man can create or man can make up. God is calling all men to repent of their wrong view of Him. To repent because He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained and has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. So it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to declare the judgment day is upon all those who reject God for the false gods for the false gods and 
their lies. Look at Psalm 115. So as we repent, where do we begin? Psalm 115 is a great place. When we repent, we say, Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. Not to us. It is not in us. It is not in our minds. It is not in our ability to objectify or to put these these blinders over our eyes, Lord. It's not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name be glory. To your name give glory. Our God is a personal God and He's given us His name. What's the first thing you do when you meet another person? You say, what is your name? Why? Because we're designed to have covenant relationships one with another. God gives us His name. Now, His nature is so much far greater that He cannot reveal His nature to us. We're fallen. We can't look upon the Father and live. But He's given us His name so that we can know Him. We can know Him who is, God, who is our God. Who we can have a personal relationship with the covenant-keeping God. So we say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory because of Your mercy, because of Your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? So the Gentiles don't see this God because they have an impersonal God. They have the gods of wood and stone. So the psalmist is saying, the Gentiles say this, but our God is in heaven. He is sovereign. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. And then he describes this wrong view of God. These gods are impersonal. They're not real. They're not living. They're dead. This is what the psalmist says. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. So he says, these lies have all the trappings of God. They will try to look like God. They'll try to act like God. They'll try to be God. But they're not God. And they fool people. And they deceive people into thinking that they are God. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. Forgive us. Repent. Turn away from these false ideas. These false images. These false philosophies. That exalt humanism. Pragmatism. Atheism. Communism. They exalt the the ideas of man and they downplay God. So this psalmist nails it with with the ramifications of idolatry. What are the ramifications of idolatry? It's verse 8. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. So if you make an idol, if you if you exalt There is no personal God, sovereign God, covenant-making, keeping God in the Bible. I'm an atheist. Those who make them are like them. I can live how I want. So is everyone who trusts in them. I may be a Christian, but I don't really see God like this. There's a lot of Christian atheism. There's a lot of Christians with blinders over their eyes. As I began, God opened my eyes because I have been impacted by this idea that God is a force. And then I can manipulate, I can, I can call upon the force of God for power and for good in my life. That is not how God operates. That is not who God is. He's a personal God who makes covenant. And we relate to Him through the covenant of His grace. 
through Christ his Son, and he is a personal living God that we have a relationship with. And in finding that relationship, we have relationship with everything in its proper order. But if we lack that relationship and that proper fear and foundation of who God is, then we will trust in the wrong thing. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Verse 9, O Israel, trust in Yahweh, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear Yahweh, trust in Yahweh. That's his name, Yahweh. He has given us his name. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful to us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear him, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence, but we bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hallelujah. That's Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Very instructive psalm on how when you make an idol, when you believe wrongly about God, you will trust in that and that will be the implication of your life. So repent and turn away, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory. To your name be honor. To your name be truly praised. This is, a, this is the covenant person of who God is. He is the fundamental lens by which we see everything and by which we even see God Himself. Let's look at the covenant person of God Himself. God is one undivided essence. God Himself is His own interpreter, and He's revealed who He is within Himself. And we see very clearly that, that God Himself is in a covenant relationship within Himself. In this way, the Father makes a covenant with his son. The psalmist says that, Psalm 89, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. We know that this covenant is ultimately about the son of David, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, born of David. Ultimately, it's about Christ, the Father's son. We know this relationship between the Father and the Son is very important. In John 12, 49, Jesus said, For I have spoken not of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that His command is everlasting life. So the Father has given the Son eternal commands or stipulations that the Son is to follow is to obey his Father's voice. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. That's John 12, 49-50. So the Father has called his Son into this inner Trinitarian relationship. First uh, Peter 1 says, He, that is Christ, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So this inner Trinitarian relationship that was before the foundation of the world, that Christ came to do His Father's will as His Father gave command, entered into this type of covenant relationship 
between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, I certainly don't know all that that means, but we certainly see the implications or the applications of Christ coming to do His Father's will, to keep His Father's command. We see there's a covenant that was made and a covenant that was kept and a promise that Christ said, I will do my Father's will, not my will be done, but your will be done. And He went all the way to the cross and He died on the cross. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Son is in an eternal relationship with the Father. And again, what regulates relationships? Covenants. Covenants are what regulate relationships. And so we see God as a covenant person. He Himself is in a covenant community relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's why when Jesus came, He came to show His Father. He came to love His Father. We see in John Because that's who He is. He is the Father's eternal Son who is in this joint relationship with His Father in love of a covenant. Uh, John 15, 9, As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Love is always covenantal. Love takes form and relationship in the covenant. That's why love always feeds on commandments and the commandments put God first and we put the commandments first in our hearts, it looks like love for others. Christ came to do His Father's will. That's why He said, next verse, If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love, just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. We see that God Himself is a covenant person within Himself. Now, listen. Here. When we accept God, and believe in Him, we become as He is. We become part of His covenant people. We become as He is. We become, we become part of His community within Himself. We become His children in such a way that His life becomes our life. His character, His love, His holiness, His righteousness becomes our love, our character, our holiness, our righteousness. His ability, His strength because becomes our ability and our strength as His children. So, he, so as He is, so we become by faith as we are united together with Him <clears throat> through Christ in the Holy Spirit as His covenant people. This is the great blessing, amazing grace that God extends to all those who will but believe in Him. So let's look to the living God. Let's understand who God is. Again, God is not an impersonal force. He is not an irrational being. He is not some distant, impersonal being. He is a living God. The reason the Bible uses anthropomorphisms, you know, like it says God has a hand, has a foot, these type of things, The reason the Bible uses anthropomorphisms to describe God is because God is not a force. God is not a fate. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord, the mind of Christ, the hand of God, the footstool of Yahweh. Right? These images are to be in our minds and we're to think about God in this way. The face of God. 
The most intimate form of communication known to man is face-to-face communication. Now, the world wants to skew that. The world wants to cover the face and, and just look at anything other than that. But for human relationships to exist, they must be face-to-face. We know that as people. God reveals that to us in His Word. Number 624, here's the heart of God and blessing. The Lord bless you, number 624, and keep you. Yahweh, the Lord, make His face shine upon you. Look at that. Make His face shine upon you. We're to, we're to, this is the image given to us that God's face shines upon His people. God loves you. And His love is covenantal. And if you're in Christ, if you're, you're His, and His face shines upon you. Listen, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you. Now, do you know what countenance means? That's the face. That's the, sh- that's the glow of a shining face. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. All throughout the scripture, the scripture talks about the countenance of God. Psalm 4 verse 5, Offer the sacrifice of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. So again, in the face of evil, people mocking our God, people mocking us, people not seeing the living God for who He is, and we say, Lord, lift up your face upon us. Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Psalm 11, verse 7, For Yahweh is righteousness. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. So His glory, His face, the smile of God upholds the upright. God invites all whom He has chosen to come and behold His face through the everlasting covenant that He has made with them through Christ in His Spirit. The result is that His children see Him. Now again, they don't see Him as with their eyes physical. The psalmist said in Psalm 34 verse 5, they looked to Him and were radiant. They looked to Him and were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. They saw God, even though they don't see Him with the eyes. They know Him. They perceive Him. They understand Him. He reveals Himself to their spirit through His Word by His Spirit that He places. And in that sense, they look to Him and they're radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. Our sins are removed, brothers and sisters. Our sins are forgiven. We come to Christ. And in Christ, we come to the Father. And by faith, we are united with Him. And His life becomes our life. His love becomes our love. His faith, His his character becomes our life that we live in through faith as we are connected to Him through the gospel of His Son, by the death, burial, and resurrection. No works that we do. There's nothing that we can do to earn this. This is a gift of His grace, a choice that He makes to invite those fallen, rebellious sinners into a relationship with God that is based in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. The result, Psalm 134, verse 5, they looked to Him and they were spectacular. They were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. You know, this doesn't happen 
to anyone except those who know the God of the Bible. You don't look to an idol and become radiant. You don't look at impersonal forces and say, wow, look. No, this happens when you look to the living God. They see him, his word, his acts, and they know him. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Yahweh, in the light of your countenance. That's Psalm 89, verse 15. So those who know God, they walk in the light of his face. So it's this image here. Think about that. Psalm 89, verse 15. The the emanations, the radiation, the glory emanating from the face, the smile, the blessing of God. The people of God walk in that light. That's what it means to know God. Right there. That's what it means to know God. Do you walk in the light of the countenance of the Son of God who has given Himself to you in the face of Jesus Christ? say, well, I can't see His face. That's not the point. It's not physical. It's spiritual. It's the Word of God illuminated by the Spirit of God that draws us into knowing God. That the light of His face illumines us. The light of His strength strengthens us. Psalm 36 verse 9 is a beautiful psalm. Psalm 36 verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. From your light we understand light. We see light. Without your light we are left in darkness. It's the face of the countenance of Almighty God that we understand what light is, that we understand what truth is, that we understand who Christ is, that we understand the great mercy and the great grace that has been given to us, and that we can now walk out that in the face of Jesus Christ. Not because we are good, but because He is good. Not because we've done anything spectacular, no, but because He has done what is Amazing. He is giving us amazing grace. Amen? This is the true calling of the gospel. Uh, now, the false gods will always come against this. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, Whose minds the gods of this age has blinded. They are blinded from this. The very glory of God, they're blinded. And many Christians, I'm concerned, fall into this trap where they get blinded by the force. Luke, use the force. You don't need the force, you need God. There is no force. There's no impersonal chance. There's no evolution. It's a lie. But the God of this age has blinded, has blinded them who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Christ's sake. For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what I'm talking about here. 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It is God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness. That's the Genesis 1 analogy. 
In the beginning, God, God spoke, He made light. It's that same image. God speaks through His Spirit, His Word, into your heart. This is what it means to be born again. He speaks His Word into your heart, who is shown in where? Not in the, not in the physical creation, right? Not in the cosmos. In uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, He has commanded the light to shine in our hearts. So that from our hearts, He gives us the light that is the knowledge of the glory of Christ that is a personal relationship with God in the face of Jesus Christ. For in your light, we see light. Now, brothers and sisters, when God does that, this is what happens. In your face, we see light. In your light, we see reality. And reality is, as God said, love. Love. That's why the whole ethics of the whole Christian life flow from this idea of knowing God, being justified, being connected with God. That's why, verse, and in 1 John, the Bible says, He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. I have meditated on this verse so many hours. Every time I don't love, I think, God, what is it in me that keeps me from loving other people? Your word says, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So I must not know God because I'm, I'm, I, 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 I have a hard time loving the God I can't see sometimes. But I can clearly see in relation to other people, I'm clearly not loving that person when I'm angry. When I'm objectifying, right? When I'm angry, when I'm lusting, when I'm coveting, when I'm stealing, when I'm, when I'm not being telling the truth. I'm not loving people. I'm certainly not loving God. And that can become obvious. So, you see, when you understand that God is the covenant person, the faithful God, He is the God, the living God, when we know who God is, we automatically will love other people because we'll see the face of Christ. We'll see light. And in light, we see light. In love, we love. In mercy, we show mercy. When we understand who God is, then we understand what love is. For God is love. And remember, love is always covenantal. Love is always a covenantal term. It's in relation to the covenant. So let's think about this now in relation to what God has commanded us. When we talk about seeing God... We're going to worship God alone. We're not going to have any impersonal gods or goddesses, no other means of worshiping God other than God's voice. The second commandment, because we know His voice. There's going to be no other name. We're not going to take His name in vain. We're not going to, because we know Him. The third commandment, His name is Yahweh. In the Old Testament, He's revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Spirit through Jesus Christ. No other name. Only through His name. There's no other name given by where we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. And in His name, there is power, there's relationship, there's love, there's covenant, and there's community. No other name, no other Sabbath rest, and no other ethics. The next commandments unpack that ethics. There's no other authority except for God. God gives that to parents. Do you see your parents as people or do you see them as a pain in the neck? If you see them as people, as God created them with authority from God, it's simple to honor your parents. How about 
uh, don't commit murder. If you are loving God in His light, we see light, then it's easy to love other people because you're just loving as God loves you. You're not objectifying. Remember, the first step to murder is objectification. Before you would murder someone, you get angry at them. And before you get angry at them, you call them names. Why you fill in the blank, right? You blankety blank. You, you objectify them. You speak of their nature as something other than what it is in reality. That's objectification. And we do that because we worship idols, not the true and living God. So we take our eyes off Christ, the true and living God. We objectify people. That justifies our anger. And then from there flows murder. In the Rwanda genocide, the Hutu tribe, before they killed some 800,000 Tutsi tribe members, they called them officially cockroaches. They called them cockroaches. They objectified them, you cockroach. They lied about them. They justified themselves. And in a hundred days, mainly with machetes, they went and they hacked to death their neighbors and their friends. How could someone do that? They objectified their enemies and they killed them. And they did that because they do not know God. Same with sexual lust and all, all of the wicked perversions. Pornography is all about voyeurism, objectification. It's saying, I can do what I want in this world and this world is just impersonal lust. There's no love. It's just impersonal lust. There's no covenant. I can have sex outside of a covenant. A covenant is interpersonal relationship. A, co a covenant is in marriage between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. It's interpersonal relationship. So the only way to have respect and dignity for men and women is in marriage sexually, in to have a personal relationship that joins the force of sexual unity together between a husband and wife with integrity. Everything else is objectification. It's abuse. It's ab being abused and abusing. It's sexual perversion. Stealing. When you're, when you're stealing from someone that you don't care about or even trying to get a deal over someone that you're not loving. That's objectifying. You're not concerned for them as a, as a person or having dignity for them. Oh. And the list goes right through the Ten Commandments with coveting be the, being the core blinder. I want what I want because I feel it and I can do what I want. Rather than saying, no, no, no. When you know God, you know His love. It changes you completely. The way you see God is the way in which you will see people. The way you relate to God is the way in which you relate to people. That's why 1 John 4 says, no one has seen God at any time. He, how can you say that you love God whom you've not seen if you're not loving the people in front of you who you can see? Those who know God know love for God is love. This is love. God sent His Son into the world so we ought to love each other because God took the initiative to love us. Not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We who receive His love by grace show His love 
by grace. The way you see God, the way you understand God, and God, the personal covenant God, the way you understand the God of the Bible is the way you see people. So all you have to do to test your theology is look to your relationships. If you treat people in an unkind, objectifying way, meaning you deny the reality of who they are as image bearers of God with mind, emotion, and will, and respect them and give them what they need as people, that shows you that you're worshiping a God who's not found in the Bible. The God of the Bible shows us how to love. And as we look to God, He teaches us how to love. The way you see God is the way you see people. If your lens is in personal pride, you will see people, not for who they are or what they need, but as impersonal beings that exist to serve you, like your car. Or maybe like your dog. Or maybe like a rat. Depends on your mood, doesn't it? However, if you see God as the living God and believe in Him, you will see people for who they are and what they need and what you can do to love them and to serve them as servants of God. My prayer for you is that God would continue to open the eyes of your heart that you would see these good things, that you would know Him. If you are not saved, if you've never been born again, I pray that you cry out to God for mercy. Let us all pray, O oh God, that you'd open the eyes of our hearts, that we would understand you, the one true God, the living God, and transform us. Lord, continue to work in my heart. Help me to see. In your light, I see light. Help me to live in the light of your countenance, that I would love as you have loved, that I would be merciful as you are merciful, that I would be faithful as you are faithful, and that we together, as the faith community, would shine out the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. I pray this in Jesus' name.